0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of 1991, the year AOR ate itself. We're here to talk about a year's worth of big rock records uh, in the year before the format sort of died and was born anew, much like a uh, flannel-clad phoenix. And every month we're going to be focusing on one record that was released right around that time of year. So today we're going to be talking about a record that came out in January of 91. And I think the, the performer here is kind of appropriate because it's a guy who just by virtue of stepping up to a mic and opening his mouth helped to define the uh, AOR format for pretty much the entirety of the, the era that we were alive to remember. We're talking about, of course. None other than the Peter Cetera of Van Halen, Mr. David Lee Roth, Diamond Dave, and his album "A Little Ain't Enough." This album was a top twenty hit for Dave, his third full length solo after departing Van Halen. It, it peaked at number eighteen, went gold in the spring, but that was a little bit of a come down for him following his previous. Solo releases, I think both of those went at least platinum. Skyscraper, the one that came out before that, was top 10. And he really only had one mainstream single to speak of from this record, which was the title track. So that kind of sets the stage for what we're talking about here with this record. I'd like to kick it over to my esteemed co hosts Matt Wardlaw, and our special guest for this episode, our friend, and fellow Ultimate Classic Rock veteran and Pop Dose veteran, Rob Smith.
1: Hello, 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 Jeff Giles.
2: <laughs> hello,
1: Matt. Greetings, Brother Jeff and hello. Brother Matt.
2: Hello. Rob. Let me tell you straight out of the gate, I am surprised. I just had to look this up. You said that A Little Ain't Enough peaked at number 18 and went gold. And I was not questioning your knowledge of that. But instead, it immediately made me, because I'm a total nerd, it made me wonder, when did SoundScan start? So I looked up and SoundScan began right? in November 30th of 1991. So, I thought it was But a I just was like, I just about fell out of my chair hearing the revelation <laughs> that that peaked at number 18. There are so many things that could be said about that statistic.
0: Are you suggesting that this was a, a paper hit? Is that what you're intimating here?
2: Everything. You see, Jeff, you went there. Everything that I was <laughs> thinking of seemed extremely hurtful to say out loud. So you know that I tend to be the nicer one of the two of us. So I decided College. to just kind of just express my moderate surprise at that statistic, which you uttered and leave it at that. <laughs>
0: I'm kind of surprised that it went gold. At this stage of his career, it doesn't really surprise me that Dave would get a top 20 hit just based on name brand alone. But the momentum that this album had died pretty quickly. So just the fact that they were able to at least approximate 500,000 people turning out to buy this thing, that did surprise
1: me a little bit. So it it sold gold. It wasn't like ship gold.
0: In return platinum?
1: Return platinum. (laughs) (laughs) The old KISS solo records thing.
0: Well, who can say for sure? All I know is that it was certified. So either...
2: Just like David Lee Roth himself, certified. Just
0: like David Lee Roth, (laughs) exactly. Either half a million people really bought it or the people at Warner's still loved Dave enough to grease a few palms and and make some things happen for him. I thought that SoundScan was in the spring. Yeah, I thought it was much earlier in the year that that happened.
2: Oh, wait, you know what? You're right. Yeah, I'm looking here. So the date that pops up at the top of Google, which is not helpful... Says November 30th, 1991, in big letters. And then when you start reading it, okay, yeah, that's correct. So November 30th, 1991. And then it says, Nielsen SoundScan began tracking sales data for Nielsen on March 1st, 1991. The May 25th issue of Billboard published Billboard 200 and country album charts based on SoundScan piece count data. The first Hot 100 chart to debut with the system was released on November 30th, 1991. So There's a couple of dates there. So yeah, your memory that it started earlier in the year is correct, of course, Brother Giles.
0: I had it in my head that Metallica were the first beneficiaries of the the switch.
2: I thought I mean my thought that like made me leap into action was just the idea was that like if this thing peaked at 18 and was gold, clearly that was not the sales being, and I say sales as in S-A-I-L-S. Mm-hmm. being lifted up by SoundScan, because I would think that with SoundScan, the opposite would have happened, and this probably would have charted lower and sold lower. So Absolutely we'll never that. know.
0: <laughs> we were all in the Target demo, yeah. Yeah, I was 16 when this record came out.
2: Matt. Yeah, I was, I was roughly around that.
0: And I think Rob was in
1: college, right? I think Rob was in his early 30s at that point. <laughs> I was in my early 30s at that point. I was in college when it to remember
0: that. And everybody, we were all Van Halen fans. Everybody yep. had every reason to be on board for this. I owned this. I'm sure Matt owned it. I know that I, Rob now owns it, a freshly purchased copy.
2: I did not own it. Clearly, I was, I mean, anybody knows anything. I had the crystal ball and I was saving my money for foreign lawful kernel knowledge to be released later that same year. So I realized that I had to like save my funds for a more important purchase. Well, yeah, and wisely. I
0: can't fault In you. In retrospect. <laughs> Do you remember a sense of personal anticipation around this record coming out? Were you, were you excited for it?
2: I was very intrigued just based on hearing the title track, A Little Ain't Enough. I mean, it certainly was just classic from the DLR playbook. So that led me to believe that I could expect a lot more of the same. And yes, I was excited about the record. And then for me personally, I heard Sensible Shoes and that kind of like killed. So yes, it was not a day one purchase. And in fact, I did not purchase the album at the time in that era based on the fact that I kind of like stuck it out. And I was like, I want to hear another
1: single or two from this record. And when I heard Sensible Shoes, I was like, no, I'm out. Sensible Shoes was actually a radio hit in my neck of the woods. They played it a lot on the two rock stations we had here at the time. I was not waiting in as eager anticipation as I did for unlawful carnal carnal knowledge. The lead single, Little Ain't Enough, was pleasant enough. The video was typical Dave of the era, but it was not something that I was eagerly, eagerly anticipating. It's a pleasant enough record. I like it. I think it's a good album. I agree with you on Sensible Shoes. I did not care for that particular track, but there's plenty... Plenty else on here to recommend it, I think.
2: It's worth noting that, obviously, Rob's Sensible Shoes doing well in uh, Rob's neck of the woods, they clearly did not have sound scan there where Rob was. Because <laughs> <looking at it. laughs> if they would have been looking at the data, they would have been like, this thing is a dog, let's move on.
0: <laughs> Why do you guys think that things went soft for Dave so fast? I mean, he was essentially doing exactly what he had always done. Van Halen fans are notorious for arguing forever over who's the best Van Halen singer. And I think Dave probably has more people behind him in that argument historically than Sammy Agar does. Yep. So people still turned out to buy Van Halen
1: records, certainly, in even
0: greater numbers than before. Why did they turn away from Dave so
1: fast? I think it was part of it was sort of the tenor of the times it was a cultural moment at that point where we were engaged in uh military operations Mm -hmm. in the middle east point where there was a lot more pop culture was rewarded when it was of a more patriotic or serious nature than i think it was for someone like dave who he's a beloved clown but a clown nonetheless. And that was not what was happening, I guess, in pop culture at that point, early in 91.
2: That's a really interesting perspective, Rob, because it's like, what I'm looking at, it looks like Desert Storm, like wrapped up in, near the end of February of that year. So it's interesting to wonder, because there's a couple of things at play. I think that other things you had going on was that like, there's kind of like the changing tide of what was happening musically. Like, so It's interesting to wonder, like, if the record would have had a different impact, if it would have come out later in the year, or if Dave and Dave's personality and what Dave was all about just was just character wise, just out of place by that point with everything else that was happening in 1991. So I don't know. I think he's just such a unbelievably over the top personality that he just might have been the guy in the room at that point that, like, didn't fit in with the rest of what was going on in 1991. Desert Storm or no Desert Storm
0: yeah listening to you talk i'm considering a world in which this record came out in like april or may
1: yeah and uh, the summer album yeah,
0: yeah and something then the, the title track is on the radio in the summer exactly i wonder if things might have turned out a little bit differently
1: yeah
2: i think that would have been an interesting play because it's just like if that would have come out as like a summer record just in the sense like if the title track was a summer record i think that could have been a really decent summer song And it could have built up some good momentum going into the fall and of course, like be out ahead of the Van Halen record. So the Van Halen record might have even led to some press of like, David's got a record out, but also so does Van Halen. And the critics could have put the two up against each other. And that could have like given some additional attention to folks that might have missed that David had a record come out earlier that year. So. I don't know. There's all sorts of fun possibilities. Just if you shift the timeline a little bit of what could have happened. But I think ultimately, when I look at this record top to bottom song wise, I don't know that there really was a strong contender. Hence why we look at Sensible Shoes is the one that I think a lot of people remember is the thing that followed. I don't know that there's a really good contender that would have followed to help build on the momentum that a little ain't enough generated and i mean we saw that when the record was actually released in 1991 so i think if you even shifted the timeline i think it would have been difficult to find something that would have helped to carry that momentum forward which is not to say that there's not a lot of other good rock tunes on this record because there are there's like i think david like really does some interesting stuff musically and collaborates with some interesting folks musically on the songs on this record i mean lady luck being one of them it's like you know the musical hook kind of has like a ronnie james dio kind of thing to it well one of the people he wrote on that tune with was craig goldie of course who spent a lot of time in the dio band so as always david continued to branch out with this record and for my money even though i didn't spend it on dlr sorry about that 1991 i think that he continued to indulge like his wide range of musical taste and really kind of on the different songs on this record really spent some time exploring a lot of different avenues. And that's what I hear when I go back to this record, is that just like there's so many records that were released by a lot of artists that were like known for a certain thing that it's like top to bottom. They were just kind of that same thing. And I think that now with a little bit of perspective in hindsight, when you look back at the David Lee Roth solo records, certainly, and I think you can apply this to the Van Halen records to a point as well, but with the David Lee Roth records, Here's the thing. I got to stop because the Van Halen part of things, the obviously through line that made those songs all kind of sound consistent, no matter where they were going musically was Eddie Van Halen on guitar. I think there was a huge amount of that and Michael Anthony on the bass and vocals and Alex on the drums, like that colored all those songs in a certain way. So I think that you couldn't get away from. So I think to me, that's kind of what is interesting about where David went with his solo work that was different was that even though... He had just an incredible band on each of these records that he did, whether it was Eat Him and Smile or Skyscraper or now this album, A Little Ain't Enough. Even though he had the same like top-level players, they weren't necessarily as distinctive sound-wise. And so when he kind of like pushed the boat out further from the dock on certain songs, it stuck out a little bit more because you didn't have that signature guitar tone of an Eddie Van Halen to kind of connect the dots the song that came before it and the song that came after it. So I don't know how the Van Halen fans were hearing these records at the time, but I find them very interesting to listen to now because now with hindsight, as we know, like just how developed David Lee Roth is as a music fan personally, I think you can really hear that on these records and it makes these records very interesting to go back to. And with that, I think there was a point or three somewhere in all that. I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) say No, no, no. That was good. That was good. That was very
0: good. You made some interesting (laughs) points. I agree with you. I agree that I don't think Dave was really that I don't think he ever really did anything that was that far afield as a solo artist. You remember that old onion headline about Taco Bell finding a new way to mix the same five ingredients? Yeah. I I think that's Dave. He's got his shticks and they they've been pretty consistent throughout his career, I think. But I do think as a solo artist, he was a lot more willing to get weird and be funny and do things that genre exercises that Van Halen would never do.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: I think that the chief difference in terms of why Van Halen fans stuck with the band even while they argued over who they wanted behind the mic is the songs. The songs just, as far as I'm concerned, they don't hold up. Uh, you can't, if you listen to OU812 Back to Back, Skyscraper, one of those records has much better songs, and I'm sorry, but it's not Dave's. <laughs> I know that we all have issues with the production on OUA-1-2, but the songs themselves, I think, stack up a lot better than the ones on Skyscraper. And same with Colonel Knowledge and Little In Enough. Dave was a pretty good singles act for his first few records. There were always a couple of songs, almost always a couple of songs that you could chuck out to radio and they sounded great, but I don't think he was as consistent as an album artist.
2: Yeah, my five second point to all the previous that I said, I think you just hit on really well is like, basically, I think that Dave was glued into a certain thing in Van Halen and there were boundaries. And for better or for worse, when he was outside of Van Halen, those boundaries were removed and you hit it (laughs) on the head. It's like the consistency factor wasn't necessarily there album wise, song to song to song for Dave's solo work in the same way that it it was good for him to be governed a little bit in his Van Halen years. Reined in.
0: I think that's probably true about Dave in all aspects of his life. Uh, <laughs> I, know, I know, I know that you have attempted to interview this man at least once, right? Yeah. Or have you talked to him more than once?
2: I talked to him one time, and it was glorious. <laughs> it was glorious. And as long as we've gone this far, like we should say that, like the thing that I found interesting about the Van Halen reunion when it came around, like in the mid two thousands, was that by all accounts, it kind of seemed like Dave. Kind of had a ruling part of that reunion. Like he was more in control than I got the sense that he ever had been when he was in the band. That's Hmm. what I saw. Like it seemed like he was kind of like the most, at times, stable part of that band in that reunion, which was interesting to see. Because they just had. He had a certain reputation, like he's the goofball that doesn't take things too seriously. And I think that's what you find when you dig into David Lee Roth years later is that he actually is very serious about every aspect of what he does. Like right. there's David, there's the persona of David Lee Roth. And then there's what David Lee Roth is actually behind the
1: scenes when it comes to his personal business. I didn't see that in the reunion, to be honest. With you. I thought this was more about Ed and Wolfgang getting to play together. Yeah. Yeah being a vehicle for that since eddie had pretty much burned the bridge with sammy and and mike and my kind of proof for that would be the record that came out of that particular reunion in, in 2012 yep different kind of truth everything from the song selection which was pretty much from what i understand from what i read wolfie's vision of the thing to the artwork i mean Dave is a, as much a visual artist in a lot of respects as he is a musician. And the artwork for that record was very subdued. Now, when you put them all on stage, he is the master of ceremony. Yep. And he is the guy that gets the crowd going. And he is the, the jokester, the ringleader. I never got the impression that he had any more of a modicum of control in that than, I guess, you, you saw it.
2: You make a good point because there's no question that like we've heard that Wolfgang was like a huge driving force of this thing even happening.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I guess that to state it a different way it's like I guess my point was that Dave had from my perspective more of a part of it, more of a piece of it than he had in the past like just in in terms of control. And that might be completely not true. But Regardless, that's one of those little sidebars that has nothing to do with A Little Ain't Enough in 1991, but I'm good about, like, leading,
1: uh, you know, <laughs> off the top of that. That's yeah. right. Digressions are Back good. Back to 91. <laughs> the funny thing here that we're talking about is the cultural moment in the beginning of 91. Yeah. As opposed to what would have happened had he released it in the spring or maybe the summer. Van Halen put out a single about Sammy's girl's ass with Eddie uh, taking a hell yes grill to his goddamn guitar. And it was, I mean, that just
0: exploded. And it came out at the right time? What was it, May, June? I forget yeah, when exactly it, was, it, was, it was
1: released. It was the summer. Yeah. I remember that, that was the record I played most all summer that year.
0: And for good and, reason.
1: Uh, it was great. I loved it. And that's my favorite Sammy era album. But Pound cake has very little as far as serious lyrical content <laughs> recommended. <laughs> but, but yet there it is. And it yeah. was huge. You have Dave, I don't think so, you know, all over a little ain't enough. And it was a modest hit, but not the same impact. I also I- want to point out, play a yeah. little
0: ain't enough, the song next to Pound Cake. Yeah. Pound Cake is monstrous. Yeah, it's huge. Exactly. Yeah. Little Ain't Enough is cute. Godzilla
1: Stomp yes. on Tokyo.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. little, little, <laughs> little Ain't Enough is cute and catchy. Yeah. We should note here that part of the reason that it's so cute and catchy is that he had noted song doctor to the, the Disney set, Robbie Neville, in there.
1: That floors to, me.
0: <laughs> to, yeah. to, to go, right? I'm sure, based on what Robbie Neville has done with the rest of his career, I'm sure he's got to be... Uh, a guy that you'd want to have in the room if you're trying to put together something that sounds like a hit. I'm sure he was a big part of the fact that that, that song works as well as it does. That leads me into something that we've kind of alluded to a couple of times during this conversation, which is the the personnel
1: that he used
0: on the album early in his career, early in his solo career. I think Dave's model was sort of to, find himself a guitar hero, round out the rest of his lineup with a bunch of really shit-hot players. Yep. Worked really well for those first couple albums. That his band blew up, and he was only left with, uh, what, the keyboard player?
2: Yeah, at that time, uh, that'd be uh, Brett Tuggle, right? Yeah. Tuggle.
0: So he had to go out and get himself a new guitar hero, and he did. A kid named Jason Becker, who, I guess, in terms of his tour of duty in the band he's sort of a become sort of a footnote in the DLR saga, but it could have and it should have turned out very differently if he hadn't fallen ill during the recording of
1: the album. It was a tragic footnote. It's hard to think of a more tragic footnote. Yeah than, uh, in any of this discussion. The fact that I mean this kid who was earlier today, before we got on before we started this conversation, I went on YouTube and looked up some of his pre-DLR videos, the stuff. He had made several records for Trap. Shrapnel yep. Records, which was a big metal shredder label back in the mid-80s, early mid-80s. And you got a 14, 15-year-old kid in these videos just sweet pictures and the, the hammer-ons and the note runs, the, these little... I lack the vocabulary <laughs> for what I saw in those videos, but <laughs> clearly a virtuoso on his instrument from a very young age. And who got that guy in your band? And here, like Jeff said, he's another guitar hero. And the whole ALS thing, yeah, just heartbreaking.
2: Yeah, he just... He shines all over this record. And I've read some of the commentary. Somebody asked Bob Rock at one point if they could already see that like things were going on when they were doing the record. And he says that they, they had to work at it because the effects that he was already feeling from ALS starting to set in. And so knowing that...
0: I think he had to change his strings, right? I remember reading that at some point. He changed to a uh, much lighter gauge because okay. he was losing strength in his hands.
2: Yeah, whatever he did we are none the wiser. Sometimes you like, sometimes you hear that and then you can kind of hear that it was like pasted together. You don't hear that. This is not a, a record of performances that were pasted together to make him sound like a great guitarist. Like he was a great, incredible guitarist. And like, this is his shining moment that really should have been the opening door for a career that like, you know, we would still be talking about him in that way because he had made a bunch more records after that. So it is just absolutely tragic that this was kind of like the one and done moment where he kind of gets his moment in the limelight and then doesn't get to like follow it up. But you know what? For not getting to follow it up. And of course, anybody that has been following along, like he is miraculously still with us. There's a really unbelievable documentary about his life. Like he has done a lot in the 30 years since then. Still writing music. Yeah, still writing music. With his
0: eyes, uh, right?
2: With his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, (laughs) it's... Pretty damn crazy. Like some people, it's like they're known for a certain record. I mean, it's just like you know what? Like everything he laid down on this record. I mean, I mean, there's no grading on the curve. It's unbelievable stuff.
1: So, and he was good at so many things. Absolutely. Too. Yep. You hear the shred. You hear the sort of the the Steve Vai melody while he's shredding. You hear a blues element, which comes from what I've read. Steve Hunter yep. uh, was off this record as well and in the studio with him, sort of nudging him into a bluesier direction with some of the songs that Steve Hunter plays on the record as well. Steve Hunter played with Blue Reed and Alice Cooper and a number of other the Dick Wagner, Steve Hunter combo that actually were the ones doing the solos on Aerosmith's Train Kept a Rolling. (laughs) So you had someone of that caliber in there with him, sort of helping him explore these different directions. But yeah, I mean, he could do anything. And he was so young at that point. Yep. So young. Nothing but potential.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As fun as it is to imagine a world in which this record came out in the spring or the summer, it's also intriguing to imagine a world in which Becker got to go on tour
2: behind this album. Oh, yeah. Right? Absolutely. And here's what I love about Becker is that like, I think that like with Steve Vai, Dave made a choice to get somebody to fill an Eddie Van Halen sized hole, because it's just Mm -hmm. like he knew that like fans were going to be expecting a very certain thing. And this just, this feels like to me, this feels like Dave breaking away from the concept that like, I have to have a guitar hero in my band. And he basically got himself a guitar player. I mean, let's face it, like Steve Vai could do anything that anybody asked him to. Steve Vai is definitely that guy, but Steve Vai has a very certain sound and what I like about Jason is that he's a very chameleon type of guitar player. And I think that he could be a lot of different things It was a lot of different things on this record. I don't know. Like, I just feel like it'd be interesting to know, like creatively, I wonder if there was more headbutting with Steve Vai and David Lee Roth in the studio. And I wonder if he was able to have a more different kind of collaborative relationship working with Jason Becker in the studio. You know, when I when you got
0: to boss him around.
1: <laughs> well, I, <laughs> is that what you mean? You, you got to think that happened. <laughs> well, I was as big a personality as uh, well—not as big a personality, as Dave. Nobody's got a bigger personality. Right. But you had someone of stature in Steve Vai, someone with a long string of performances behind him—the Zappa stuff, the Alcatraz stuff. But Becker didn't have that. Yeah. But yeah, to your point, how much was. Dave or Bob Rock or Steve Hunter, whoever, sort of molding him in different directions. But whatever directions they pointed him in, he could handle Yeah.
2: I just think that, like, it would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall in each of those recording situations, because it's just like, I have no doubt that, like, basically they were different pictures creatively. And yes, the one thing you can say is that like, you know, Dave had somebody more that he could just, you know, quote unquote boss or mold or whatever. But I honestly think that like Jason obviously is just so unbelievably talented that like, I think that like, if Dave said, we need to do this, Jason strikes me as the type of person that like, would follow that lead, but also like take whatever Dave said, let's do it this way and give it to him three times over with several different layers that like Dave couldn't have anticipated and thought about. Sure.
0: Yeah. I think if he had remained healthy, if ALS hadn't entered the picture and ended his career prematurely, I think he would have been a big part of the narrative around this record when it came out. I didn't read guitar magazines or anything like that when this album came out, so I'm sure I missed out on a lot of the conversation, but I don't remember Jason Becker being part of the story when the album was released it was just another dave record and then there was the controversy about the video for the single
2: yeah tell me about that video because i was going to ask about that earlier like i don't really remember the video
0: they're in the desert and i think there are uh little people probably i think there's some little people people dancing around which Dave always had with him yeah by the way you know but that wasn't what caused the controversy right there was something else in that video that
2: i thought it It was was probably the the controversy that like, somebody at the label found out that there was a David Lee Roth video, and they're like, wait a second, who paid? Who <laughs> authorized that? item
0: from the budget.
2: We <laughs> paid for What's what?
0: <laughs> I don't remember exactly what it was. Maybe he recreated the pictures that you just showed us before we started the call from the uh, booklet. Maybe he had some no, blackface no. going on in that video, and that's what did
1: it. Yeah. I don't know. But I it just- was banned. It was banned.
0: It was banned pretty quickly, and I just think if he'd come out of the box with Becker next to him, and they had a tour lined up, and people were going to get to come out and see this kid play, the story around the record would have been different.
2: Yeah, he had kind of one of the last great big David Lee Roth rock and roll tours because I was looking at that. He went out and played sheds with Extreme and Cinderella. So, and I don't think the tour did particularly well, but I read that. You know, it was- that was a. That would have been I think they pulled
0: the plug partway through.
2: <laughs> yeah, people. They're like, they're like, actually, maybe a little is enough.
1: <laughs> yeah, people. I don't think people <laughs> turned out. <it down>, no. <laughs> that would have been a hell of a tortoise. Yeah, extreme. That was was that pornography, right? Besides uh, was the
0: summer of extreme that summer year.
1: Extreme. Yeah. And Cinderella. Cinderella was a good live thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have here been. A, is, it would have been a good night out. Here
0: is uh, Entertainment Weekly's. Review of this album
2: from the time. Was this written by alternate Jeff Giles?
0: <laughs> There's no byline. <laughs> oh no, I'm sorry. It's Ken Tucker. So okay. this was written when the record came out, and it was they liked it. Uh, Ken said that, like all good pop stars, Roth makes his limitations work for him. Then he gives a little backhanded compliment, saying that his thin growl of a voice has always managed to convey lust, irony, and intelligence. Ain't enough offers ample evidence that the preening Roth has his tender side, and then he cites sensible shoes as an example. He also adds that Roth is no dummy because he makes sure to include some crass, insensitive music to please his longtime fans, as well as two flagrant Van Halen ripoffs: Last Whoa. Call and It's
2: Showtime. Wow! Yes, wow! Says two that, uh, flagrant Van Halen ripoffs. Yep. That's uh, see. First of all, I got to say, I, I disagree with, well, I, I, <laughs> I, I just, I think that Dave did some really interesting stuff vocally on this record. That's what I heard of is that like, he kind of went vocally to some different places, but last call, like, it's funny, the verses to me play out, like, it sounds very much like Dave's version of Walk This Way. So if he's ripping off anything, I would say he's ripping off Aerosmith, but I don't well, know. He, that
0: he to- says that it, on those songs, Becker
2: is doing his best to approximate Eddie Van
0: Halen. And Eddie he says, Becker, Becker is no
2: Eddie. I hope that Becker burned that issue of the magazine <laughs> and mailed the ashes to Ken Tucker's house.
0: But as a closing note he adds. Those two songs are honorable ripoffs. And this is as admirable a record as a cynic like Roth is likely to release. So A cynic like Roth?
1: Yeah, a cynic like Roth.
0: <laughs> Ken Tucker may or may not have listened to the album
1: all the way through. Oh, oh my goodness. I've got the, a little ain't enough video queued up here. (laughs)
0: Okay. You want to tell us what Uh, got it banned?
1: At about the three twenty (laughs) mark, we have a whole line of little people dressed in Afro wigs and blackface. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's that mystery solved. There you go.
0: Who at the label signed off on that (laughs) shit when it was presented?
1: Wow. I, I don't to remember know. that. I remember seeing the video. All I remember were the chicks and the women in the video. But <laughs> not the, wow. Yeah, that would not fly. I could see why that didn't. Uh, Do we
0: think that Dave's A&R guy still had
1: a job by, by the end of the Probably not. I would think probably not. The Ken Tucker thing, it's showtime. I take Conbridge at that. <laughs> I kind of it was a be. classic shuffle that, yes, Van Halen did a number of times, but so did Dave and in his, his solo stuff. The cover of Shy Boyd yeah. um, on You do know, Smile. That, to me, is was just a stroke of genius to take that song and perform it, put it on the first record. But It's Showtime's a great song. Great song. Why would you think about It's Showtime?
0: <laughs> I don't know, man. We should have had Ken Tucker on here, then.
1: We should have had yeah. I don't know if I don't know
2: if you're here, but even as we speak, Rob Smith is still taking umbrage of, uh, what was put down about it's Tech.: Yes.
0: Now I know we talked early on about how there was some surprise around this album's chart performance. Yeah. And how many copies it sold. So I think I know the answer to this question, but I want to ask anyway. Should a little in enough have
2: been a bigger hit than it was just album wise
0: yeah should have sold more copies should have had left a bigger impact should have been a bigger hit
2: i think that uh boy i don't know i i'm going <laughs> to say
0: that's the I sound mean, that matt makes when he's <laughs> He he has no choice but to say something unkind. Or when he's
1: got two opposing thoughts in his mind, he can't quite figure out which one to go with.
2: (laughs) I like that Rob just made the gesture of like the angel on the one shoulder and the devil on the other. So, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I go back to I think just should it have been a bigger hit? Yes, it should have been a bigger hit, but it would have required better songs to be a bigger hit. And I don't think that the songs on the record were – Bad. I think there's a lot of good songs on this record, but I think that as far as songs that had commercial potential, I think he was light in that department. So the interesting songs on this record, like "Baby's on Fire," kind of like hard rock DLR, very 1991 for the time, but interesting color. Like in "Hammerhead Shark," like lyrically, there's some stuff oh. classic Dave, but it's just like a little ain't enough is the song where it's like all the tricks in the book he uses all of them and they're really aren't songs elsewhere on this record aside from hammerhead shark as one example where he has enough of those tricks that line up on the same track that you could go oh man they missed that that should have been a huge hit i don't think you can say that about other songs on this record a little ain't enough is kind of to me like the outlier on this record next to everything else
1: well yeah
2: it sticks out to me as like basically like you could almost imagine, and I don't think it happened this way, but you could imagine they turn the record into the label and the label turned it right back and they're like classic, we need a single. But I don't <laughs> think that happened here. I think that basically what more what happened is if anything, like Bob Rock could have said, if this thing didn't exist in the demos, which maybe it did, if this thing did not exist in the demos, Bob Rock is the type of person that before it ever went to the label, he would have been like, We gotta give him something. Bob Rock's the guy that would have like pulled out the right song that ultimately gets you know sequenced and gives them a good single that they can go out and sell some records with. But it has that kind of sound to it, like a record that got handed in without an obvious single. And they just it pasted does. an obvious single on as track one. There's our single, we'll put it on at front of the record so that anybody that happens to press play just to check it out. That's what they hear first. And they're like, cool, yep. this is another classic David Lee Roth record. I'm going to buy this.
1: But I don't know. It, it's just, see, see, I think out. that works, except for the fact that Tell the Truth is on the record. And Tell the Truth is essentially Black Velvet rejiggered for David Lee Roth. And I was listening to it in the car again the other day. And it's like the bass and drums are dead on Alana Miles. And it's basically sort of a rehash of a song that was a hit. <laughs> but I think it kind of feeds into the purpose of this series that you're doing is. Every pop culture moment has its arc. And there's there's a time when it peaks and there's a time when it falls off. And I think that this particular album kind of showed up on sort of the downswing for that kind of music. Now, the exception to that rule, of course, is Van Halen coming out and selling four million copies of the fuck record in the summer. But I think that Dave's day was sort of on the wane at this point, and his personality and the showmanship and what have you was on the downswing there and I think that might be why you see top twenty instead of a top five. you see a gold record instead of a double platinum record,
0: yeah, again, for me, it goes back to the songs I think to go back to what Matt was talking about, I think this is a great example of a record, the type of record that people pointed to when. File sharing became a thing, MP3s became a thing. And the argument was like, hey, these fuckers have been selling us one great single and 13 shitty songs for 16 bucks for 25 years now. And we've had no way of getting just the good stuff. They can eat my asshole. (laughs) This is a great example of that. You know, it's front loaded, singles right there. It's the title track, first song on the album. Hello, it's on the radio. Give us your 11, 12, 15, 16, 17 dollars, please.
2: I have two thoughts. One, I would hate when they front-loaded a song like that, but I, I did not get stuck with a lot of records where they front-loaded. I, I don't know. I was somehow better about basically kind of like seeking out the ones that I knew. <laughs> it sounds
0: like you were patient and you waited for the, you had the three single rule, you know, where you got to hear three good hits before you're going to invest in the album.
2: Yeah. But as Rob was talking about for lawful Colonel Knowledge, it's just kind of like basically, first of all, I was thinking about how there's creatively there's better songs on that record, hook-wise, et cetera, everything. But the thing that really stuck out to me when you look at that record versus A Little Ain't Enough is just the idea that you kind of see the two different sides, or as Sammy might say, the two sides of love. Anyway, we'll move on from that. Sorry. Um <laughs> <cut>. <laughs> You see on the one side of things, you had Van Halen starting their third record working with Sammy Hagar. So you had a collaboration that continued to evolve. And that really kind of outlines something important because on the other side of things, you had Dave, where it's like this record has really very few ties collaboratively to that came before it. So there wasn't that through line of him starting like this, working with Billy Sheehan and Steve Vai on Eat 'em and Smile, and then that collaboration developing all the way through to A and Enough. So because his band evolved and was more pieces and parts, like I think you can kind of hear that with what came out song wise with this record. You don't have the same kind of consistency songwriting wise that would have developed if he had a solid band in place that kind of hung through three records like Van Halen did in the same year.
0: I love that. That's a yeah. I think that might be key. That's that's a brilliant
1: brilliant. Can point. we all agree that what he did to the Edelman Smile Band he should never be? <laughs> <beginning before. laughs> I mean, it is pretty tragic. What a fantastic rock and roll band he had for that record. And then to follow it up with Skyscraper, where you basically have Billy freaking Sheehan doing the thump, 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 thump. And James Jamerson, of course, was a great bass player. You're not going to hear James Jamerson on a Motown song doing two-handed runs up and down his fucking bass. But to have him have to lock into that single note type of thing. And then then it was over. What a, what a great band that was. He fucked it up.
2: Oh my God, you made the Jamerson reference. I just had to look at something. Here's one for you, Rob. Did you know that like on the Skyscraper records, John Batdorf does backing vocals on track? Uh, on track on st- he does backing vocals on stand up. How the that hell did damn. that happen? Wow. Batdorf
0: and Riley. Dave always had a great year for talent. It's just couldn't get out of his own way.
2: Yeah, I, I, yeah. I can't imagine like if they would have like kept that nucleus of Sheehan. Hmm. To your point, Rob Smith, if they would have kept Sheehan, Let's just start with Sheehan. If they just would have kept Sheehan, let's start there, but let's go ahead and add like and Steve Vai, et cetera. If they would have kept that whole nucleus intact, like I think that we'd be looking at an entirely different
1: record with this album. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: You'd be looking at an entirely different solo career for Dave, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You want to talk about something that just blasted out of your speakers. I mean, I still remember the first time I ever heard Yankee Rose. Yeah. Um, that's one of these things that's just kind of seared in there because it was a mind blower. And I don't know. I mean, Steve I has certainly, certainly has a knack for composition as well as virtuosity on the instrument. And to think what three or four or five records with co-writing with that group. It is. It's a shame that the thing blew apart as quickly as it did. I would have loved to have heard she and I
2: mean, again, hell, just that entire band on some of the songs on this A Little Ain't Enough record. Yeah, yep. It's just interesting, even like Sensible Shoes, I think Sheehan could have done some cool stuff with that. Any of this stuff, like I think that for the songs that are really good, I think that you could have seen some of these songs be amplified on steroids and taken to different places if you would have had that band still in place. So we will never know, Rob Smith, we'll never know. We will Uh, never
0: know. That is very true. The thing that we're discovering here, or that we're hitting on over and over again, is that David Lee Roth has robbed us of hearing more music from many great bands.
1: Yeah, yeah. He
0: fucked up Van Halen, fucked up his first solo band.
1: <laughs> oh
2: my. Here's another side trip. Like When I was like looking back as you were talking about James Jamerson and all that, Rob. As I mentioned, like there was the Batdorf inclusion on stand up, which blew me away. But another like Wikipedia thing that I'd never heard was this is going to speak, by the way, to uh we'll say a history of questionable decisions, which we've already kind of touched on some of them. But Roth's management received a phone call asking for permission for just like paradise to be used as the theme song of a new television show, Beverly Hills 90210. They rejected the idea without asking Roth first, so an original piece of instrumental music was used instead. Now, can you imagine the payday for Roth? I mean, not that he, he's had some good paydays. He's probably fine, but oh, my God.
0: He could have had Rembrandt's money, though.
2: Yeah. <laughs> he could be doing <laughs> all those legacy interviews, like 30th anniversary of Beverly Hills 90210, etc. Like, he could be part of that picture in the same way that the Rembrandts are with Friends. You're correct, Jeff. What could have been? Boasty boasty bop.
0: I don't know how, I don't know what else to add to that, Matt.
2: I know. When you're doing (laughs) bozzy bozzy bop, it really kind of just brings things to a screeching halt, and I'm good at that.
0: It puts puts things in perspective, certainly. And speaking of which, I think the last thing I want to ask you guys, and I think. This question is probably in some throughout this conversation already kind of been answered, but do you think that the relative lack of success of this record was sort of a bellwether for what was about to happen with the format? I know, Rob, you said that this record came at a downturn for this type of music, but I don't really think people knew that yet. I don't think it was being felt yet. I think AOR as a format still felt really strong. And Roth and his cohort, they were putting out new records with every reason to believe that multi-platinum sales were just around the corner. So the fact that this thing came out at whiffed, do you think that it was sort of a canary in the coal mine? What do you think?
2: First of all, if you would ask me this like a week ago or even two weeks ago, I probably would add a different answer. But um, armed now with the statistic that this album peaked at 18 and (sighs) went gold, I take umbrage at everything you just laid out there. And I'm going to speak on David Lee Roth's behalf and say that, look, man, this record peaked at 18 and it went gold. It was in fact a... Should have been platinum, Dave. Oh, that's,
1: you know what, that's true. Dave, I'm going to have to pass the ball over to Smith. (laughs) I think I, you know, my point earlier about the arc of any particular popular culture phenom or what have you, that it only has a certain amount of time to begin with. So I think that, was it a cause of it, of sort of the downturn of AOR? I don't believe so. Was it Not a cause, but a sign. But a sign? Possibly. Possibly. Again, I don't know. I don't know that Dave's personality as we knew it was right for that particular cultural moment. But I think the music probably, had it been released two years earlier, we're talking about, Releasing it later in the year, had the thing come out in 1989, yeah, would have had a much different life as a piece of uh, art. But it may have been that one of those first signs that we were we were on a downturn for AOR at that point.
2: Yeah, I, I would tend to agree that you make a good point. Like, I think that at this record. We hear this a lot, but I think if you had some records that just came out around this time that like, if this record would have come out just a little bit earlier, or in this case, as you said, 1989, I think it would have been interesting to see if this would have had more of a ride. I'm going to say that I don't think so. I think that like song-wise, I think that still he would have been a, in a tough place with songs to have stuff that would have the legs. Although, you know what? I'm going to go back to Hammerhead Shark. I think what I've been evolving... Tim, <laughs> you is and our, Hammerhead our Shark. Conversation.
1: Right. What the hell? <laughs>
2: I think I'm going to be starting a group shortly after this podcast that's just going to be called Simply Justice for Hammerhead Shark. (laughs) I'm going to put up one of those change petitions and we're going to get enough signatures to get a second wind, as Billy Joel might say, for Hammerhead Shark.
0: I wish you nothing but health and happiness, my friend.
1: Oh, thank you. Sometimes that's what it takes. (laughs) Oh, boy. I don't, no, you know what? I don't. I don't agree. I think there are several songs here that in 1989 could have
0: been pretty big. Right. Maybe like that. Fair enough. Yeah. If we have any David Lee Roth fans listening, feel free to let us know.
1: Or if Dave himself might be listening,
0: that's always a possibility. And I would love to get an email from David Dave. Lee Roth or a voicemail. A Better a voicemail.
1: Forty-five minute voicemail. Yes, exactly. <laughs> A voice no longer than the episode itself.
2: <laughs> Rob, I'm going to just say that, like, I agree with you. They're good songs. Like, what I keep coming back to is, like, I think there's some really good songs you named off Lady Luck. Babies on fire is another one that I look at. I think those are strong songs musically. I just don't think they have the hooks. So, and boy, I hate that I just said that out loud because I just became every person that, I like, going, Did you really just say that? So, yeah, I don't know. I do as a fan. I like this record, like even since Sensible Shoes, the ones that will lead me back to you, like there's a lot of fun moments on this record for me as a DLR and a Van Halen fan. So for me, this record charts high personally. I don't think that like any year that you put this out, I think it just would have still been just a case of diminishing returns. And David, going back to what we were talking to at the beginning about SoundScan, uh, I think David felt the pinch of SoundScan with the very next record that he put out, which peaked from what I'm looking at here at 78 on the Billboard 200. But 1990 seems generous. Lee Roth, that's a tough year to put out a record as David Lee Roth. Yeah, <laughs> he should have gone definitely.
1: with an alias. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> well, I think your closing remarks there, Matt, I think that's going to become a refrain throughout this series. I think it's going to be very uncommon for our listeners to hear you say anything other than this album charts high for me <laughs> the duration of the show. I'll be very curious to see if there's one in here. There can't be more than two, I don't think, that'll break you and make you say, no, this record sucks. I'm glad it tanked. <laughs> With that, I think we've said all there is to say today about David Lee Roth and Little Ain't Enough. If you're listening you have anything you want to add, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Hefito. You can reach Brother Matt here at. M. Ward Law. Indeed. And you can't reach Rob at all because he's all locked up because everybody on the internet is an asshole.
1: Oh, well. (laughs) I got nothing
0: (laughs) to say. We'll pass your correspondence along to Rob. Gentlemen, is there any place on the internet other than the dreaded social media where you'd like people to find you? Rob, I know you've got an ongoing side writing gig that, that produces some
1: pretty interesting stuff that I often enjoy reading. I do have some work. Coming out at ultimateclassicrock.com. Very happy. To be. Yeah, imagine that. Very happy to be back in the pages of UCR. Have a little something. Actually, Jeff, the next thing I'm writing for them is a defense of a record that you panned in their very same pages. Really? That would be the firm Mean Business.
0: <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> I think I worked on that Feature with Matt So he should share the blame For okay, whatever well, I wrote About
1: I mean business I do quite enjoy that album And I will be Defending it at some point In the month of February And of course In the archives Of ultimateclassicrock.com
0: And also People can find you At rhino.com
1: Right? Yes Uncredited They don't do bylines Very oh, often That's rude I didn't realize but, uh, that. that Yeah I have been for the past three years, contributing to Rhino. Three, if you click on their read link, you will be able to read my contributions in the columns, the one after the big one, which is follow-ups to big hit records, big hit albums. There's also Make It a Double, which I discontinued that about a year ago because I just ran out of Warner's double records to write about. Wow. But that is a series on albums whose artists just their muse could not be contained in deep dives <laughs> of vinyl. And then a series called Live From Your Speakers, which takes on a number of my favorite live albums. So uh, those are me. You won't see my name on them, but they are there. And I'm very proud to be on the Rhino website. You know, and that's if you are
0: listening to this and you have not read Rob Smith's prose, you need to. You're missing. You're missing out. If you love music and you love reading about music,
2: Rob. Rob's a guy that
1: you need to appreciate that.
2: Thank you. How about you, Matt? Yeah, yeah. How about me? We can just leave it there. How about about Matt? (laughs) God damn, how about Matt? I just was thinking like I was glad that you laid out, Rob, the different series that you do at Rhino because I kind of like that they're uncredited because you're like the people that played on Kiss and Cheap Trick records that like <laughs> could, could never be talked
1: about. I am the Bob Kulick of Rhino, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Rob Smith, Rob Smith's session ringer. <laughs>
2: But there's a couple things there. You talked about your series about live records, which I always enjoy, you know, reading that stuff because you and I are very much in sync on that. We both love live records. And I believe that I was going to say brother Giles over there is shaking his head because that's something that like every once Uh, in a while over the past, probably close to 15 years at this point, I would mention something to Jeff and I would be quickly reminded usually by myself that like, oh, right, Jeff doesn't really care for live albums. And that, to this day, just kind of, that shocks me. But then you also have your series, which you kind of moved on from as far as, you know, double records, which uh, I think it's important to note. We'll get to this more throughout 1991. But Jeff would call all those
1: records bloated. So... (laughs) And in some cases, (laughs) you would be right. But not all of them. Sometimes you have an artist whose muse just fills whatever space He or she gives it, and
2: see. I'm I'm glad you feel that way. That's, I I mean, that's when Jeff feels like the album begins to eat itself. So, (laughs) (laughs) I sense a a podcast series on that as well. (laughs) From my side of things, I think that there's going to be some continued stuff over in the very same pages of UCR Ultimate Classic Rock. I've got a couple of excellent fun conversations that are on tap with a couple of our mutual heroes. So looking forward to those. And Excellent. beyond that, I mean, I don't know, maybe Jeff will convince me to write about something from you know, Taco Bell. I mean, it, it's not going to take a huge
0: <laughs> <laughs> Matt, I do have an idea for a uh, history, an oral history. Feature, an oral Am I history? Get this? See, I knew it. No, it's an oral and anal history. And I'm not going to get any further into it. I'll lay out the idea for you after we're off this call. But it's an idea that amuses me. If if you are listening to this and you have not read Matt's work and you love music, then everything I said about Rob applies equally to my friend Matt. Diehard music lover, just his affection for the art just comes glowing through every word. You can find his archives at AddictedToVinyl.com. Years' worth of posts there. We've done stuff together at Popdose. We collaborated on a bunch of stuff together at Ultimate Classic Rock. If you haven't gotten your eyes on Matt's writing.
2: Yeah, there's at least three must. things that I'll point to that Jeff and I did. I was just talking, uh, well, I'll start with, you mentioned the firm. So we did a thing together about the history of the firm. Yep. You know, and I think that I called Mean Business a pretty great record. And I think you struck that right out. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably We what also happened. did uh, a thing on, I believe it was you and I work on the thing as far as HSAS and dealing with all of HSAS. But regardless, that was a fun thing. But the thing that you all definitely worked on
1: that was awesome. That was awesome. Yeah. I just was talking about this
2: earlier today. The thing that we worked on was the thing about the damn Yankees, which was a lot of fun. And I just was referencing that today in a conversation on Twitter, because the thing that floored me as we were in the midst of doing that was finding out from Jack Blades, well, you found out because you talked to Jack Blades. We always had like kind of that narrative that, Night Ranger blew up and Jack and Kelly and everybody hated each other and never talked again. As soon as Jack went over to the Dame Yankees side of things, it was really interesting to me when you found out from him that in fact, Kelly was supportive of the Dame Yankees thing, lent them like a kick drum. And basically the thought was that if Michael Carlone yep. doesn't work out, Kelly's going to be the guy. Like all those years of <laughs> knowing the Night Ranger and Dame Yankees storyline, I did not have that piece of the story in that way. So- Is just to say that there's some fun stuff as Jeff mentioned to dig back to from our collective past.
0: I interviewed him in '92 when he was on tour behind uh, Don't Tread with Damn Yankees. It was right around the time that Night Ranger had reformed without him. And I tried to get a quote from him about that. I I think I asked, like, what the relationships were like or something. And he told me that they wouldn't return his phone calls. He was clearly joking, but would have been nice, you know, if he'd given us all that information way back then so you didn't have to go 20 years thinking that when they were broken up, the members of Night Ranger did not like each other.
2: Can we find a way to do a podcast about Night Ranger, even though they didn't have an album in 1991? Can we just pretend that they had a record in 1991?
0: (laughs) You know what I want to do? Let's do a podcast about their 1988 tour with Kansas. Oh, yeah. Because at the end of that tour, both bands broke up. That had to have been... (laughs) Spinal Tap worthy. Oh, There there must be some great stories from that.
2: I just had a question on direct message that basically somebody had asked me, like, what is the top Night Ranger record? I realized I don't own any. So I was going through, like, you basically got to have the Holy Trinity. I'm like, you need Dawn Patrol, Midnight Madness, and Seven Wishes. Later, after going through a few more records, of course, As Is My Way, I looped back to Man in Motion. (laughs) And I was lamenting the fact that, like, one of the best moments on that record for me is... Restless Kind, which I think is just a classic Kelly Keighy vocal. And then I was just going, I don't think I've ever asked Kelly about that track. So I was lamenting that. So that's why we need to take Man in Motion, have it so that it was released in 1991 so we can cover that record. We've already covered off on part of it here, but we need to continue (laughs) that later this year.
0: (laughs) There's always tomorrow.
2: Anyway, sidebar.
0: And for us here on this show, there is always next month. Please join us for our next episode. I think I know which record we're going to be talking about.
2: Night Ranger Man in Motion.
0: Ben. <laughs> I, think, I think we're going to be talking about an album from a band that had been around for a very long time, changed its sound, and uh, had a lot of success. Their new sound throughout the 80s. And then all of a sudden, no. All of a sudden, no. Very abruptly, no was the answer that came. Anyway, thanks for listening. and. Hopefully you'll tune in next time and you'll hear us all over again. If you like the show, if you hate the show, let us know.